part of the problem is too many people transact rather than nurture relationships. Can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position? I have created this podcast to talk to everyday people who lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives, both professionally and personally, in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I talked to Andy Ayim, who is a father, a product management coach, investor, most importantly, a dear friend of mine for nearly 20 years. We talk about practical steps to develop self-awareness, failure, create an aspirational lifestyle, parenting, relationships, ego, and so much more. I know you're going to enjoy today's value episode. Let's get straight into it. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to my brother from another mother, Mr. Andy Ayan. I think I've known Andy for, jeez, almost about, almost about two decades, man. We're getting old. So it's definitely a pleasure just to just to have this conversation. So how are you doing, my brother? It is seven o'clock in the morning as we're recording this. It is, it is, but we're both early risers and, and the pleasure's all mine, right? Like, like you've been a massive inspiration and support uh, along my journey. Um, you knew me before, a lot of people know me now. And I think it's important to have, you know, groups of, of people within your circle that you can grow with um, and, and, and generally grow with, you know, grow in terms of our relationship, our relationships with our, our respective partners, our relationship with our children and our families, our relationship with work. You know, we talk about everything holistically and anything, scary things, fearful things. Um, so now I appreciate you, man, and I appreciate the love that you've shown my family over the years. So it's a pleasure to do this. The pleasure is mine. Now, we're definitely going to have have some fun today. But one thing I definitely want to start with, especially obviously we're still dealing with COVID and just coming out the back of that. So how have you been coping, generally speaking? You know what, COVID's been a, a blessing in disguise for me because, you know, it just put a lot of things into perspective. And when you're in times of solitude, um, it causes you to think deep and to ask yourself questions. And for me, um, it's just made me grateful about a lot of things um, when I've reconnected with myself, reconnected with my family, we've reconnected with my priorities again, you know, and what's important to me. And what it's made me realize is that I've taken a step back and I'm probably living an aspirational lifestyle today that I dreamed about five years ago and I didn't even recognize it because I was in this flywheel of just continuing to work and deliver and to do things and to move fast and to be a Londoner. Um, so stepping back during COVID has just been a real blessing in disguise, like to wake up and see my daughter in the morning, to put her to bed, you know, to, to spend time having deep conversations with my wife every day, you know, to, to finish working and, and work remotely from home, but augment work around my day with my family, you know? So from 10 AM to 1 PM, Every day I'm spending it with my family and it's blocked out. I don't care what meeting there is. I don't care what, you know, what I'm missing out on. I'm comfortable with the opportunity cost, you know, on the rare occasion I eat into that time. So, you know, to be able to go on those daily walks and stuff just reminds me of the little things that that are what we mean when we say happiness and consistent happiness. Um, and it's definitely some things that I want to maintain post-COVID around this lifestyle design and just maintaining what I have because I think, you know, you can have all the money in the world, but we're going to crave the same things like spending time with loved ones, with family, laughing, joking, eating good food. And I can do the majority of that stuff right now. So I just need to keep keep that up. Eating good food. Boy, have you have you developed the, the COVID belly yet or are you managed to maintain? I've, do you know what? I've experimented a lot with what I've been cooking. I'll tell you that for free. I made some Jamaican beef patties the other day. I was really proud of that. Are you? Okay, yeah. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I tell my, I called my mum. We're from Ghana. We originate from Ghana. I called my mum. I was like, hey, mum, I made some, some Jamaican beef patties. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know how to make that. In my head, ignorantly, I'm like, oh, she's talking about beef patties. Now I'm talking about beef patties. And she's like, I know you use turmeric. And I'm like, she knows how to make this? Uh, that's dope. One thing you touched on there is um, working on you and your yourself. So how have you, what's your, like I said, with this is seven o'clock in the morning, what's your morning routine like and how does that help you, your productivity? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm an early riser, I'm a baby when it's the evening. So um, I play to my strengths. So I wake up between 4.30 and 5.30 a.m. Um, during COVID. Um, and I start off with pray, like doing prayer, just meditating on the word or on just thoughts with God, like I like to think about it, you know, to start my day. Um, and then I just do any little odd things around the house, like drying clothes that were in the washing machine or doing a little bit of washing up, um, before I actually get started with what I call deep work, which is just uninterrupted time to just get into work. No WhatsApp, no phone calls, no emails, just doing like two, three hours straight of, of getting into just doing meaningful work, you know? So between like 5.30, 6am, and 9.30, um, I just focus on that deep work. And then at 9.30, I usually have uh, a call with my team that I'm working with within um, uh, a large corporate base out in Switzerland. And on Monday to Wednesday, on 9.30, we have what we call our stand-up meetings, just to check how each other's doing, what we're working on, any blockers that we have. And then I get into the flow of my working day. And as I said before, between 10 a.m. and, and 1 p.m., um, I try and leave that time reserved so that I can spend time with the family, eat with the family and go on our daily walk together, um, as well as doing a little bit of home learning with my daughter, who's three years old. Um, and then at 5.30, I switch off. So regardless where I get to work, 5.30 p.m. is the cutoff. I'm not working at 6. I'm not working at 9 p.m. I'm not working at 8 p.m. And that means every day just being comfortable with the trade-off and the opportunity cost of what I'm not doing um, but I'm, I'm fine with that. I think you have to be disciplined and, and have control of what you do and what you don't do. And once people get used to that and understand that you're a disciplined person and there's certain values that you're not willing to compromise, they get comfortable with that and work within the confines of your, of your restrictions. Ooh, there are a couple of points in there, actually. Because in this, in this world we live in, especially when you're like, it's grind, 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 put in the work, put in the work, put in the work. And you're, you just basically said, nah, 5.30, I'm, I'm switching off. Doesn't matter what's happening, that's, work is done. That's, in a sense, kind of goes in the opposite vein of the, the culture and the world we live in, especially in your startup world that you operate quite a lot in. I think one of the, one of the things that people undervalue is the importance of building trust. Okay, and to build trust with people that you work with, it's about delivering quality consistently, being a person of integrity, and doing what you said you're gonna do. Okay, so that they feel like, so that they feel like, when I'm not in the room, I trust Andy. He'll make smart decisions even in our absence. You know, he'll do the right thing. I can trust him with stakeholders. I can trust him to to get through what he said he was gonna get through, and then. We don't talk about augmenting our quality and what we do with time. It just becomes, I trust you'll get it done, you know, and that is a much more high quality relationship to get into than to exchange time for money, you know, which is what most people focus on almost like the nine to five. And as soon as I escape the nine to five, I'm then going to work on the thing that I actually love. Whereas I've gotten to a position over the last decade where I've moved into this space where I'm at the intersection of doing something that I'm skilled at in terms of content creation, doing something that I love in terms of product management and, and actually playing at that intersection of, of serving people I choose to serve in the work that I do. And I talked about lifestyle design earlier. I work three days a week uh, serving these corporates very intentionally, yeah, three days a week. I could work five days a week. I could earn more money. I'm, I'm leaving that on the table because I want those two days a week to spend more time with my family, to have fun and to do whatever I want to do. Okay. And I choose to experiment with that time sometimes when I have ideas. So currently an idea that I experimented with, which is gaining some more traction now is the angel investing school where I, I treat, I teach professionals on how to get started with investing into startups. And I run that twice a year, but again, very much intentional around how I run that. 
I do it twice a year in April and September. I could do it in-house for corporates. I could grow into international markets. I could run it more times a year, but I don't want to. The time that I have, I want to guard that and I want to be intentional. I want to grow slow and I want to do what I want to do in the way that I want to do it. And it takes a certain level of career confidence to get into a space where you can be so intentional about your time. And you don't start off like this. Right. But you can work towards it. And I just said that it took a decade, 10 years. But if I work for 50, 60 years, you know, that 10 years is, is a worthwhile investment to get to this space where now I can have more dominion over what I do, who I do it with and how I spend my time. So how do people get to that point and get to that confidence level? It took you 10 years, but you have to start from you have to start from somewhere. So how do people start to develop that kind of mindset to be like, actually, here's what I'm working towards? It's a great question. I think when we when we talk about self-awareness in society, we don't really boil down the actionable steps to get become self-aware. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think step one for me was just really being introspective, spending time with myself and learning about what are the things I actually value. And let me write that down. Okay. And it doesn't start off perfect. You iterate on it over time and evolve it and it will change. But you need to write down the things that differentiate what becomes a yes or no to you okay so an example of like one of my values is god first which means that you know i'm not afraid to share that i believe in god and i pray you know and i'll share that with friends with family and with colleagues all right another of mine uh values is two and five which means pre-covid uh no more than two evenings a week am i willing to socialize with others to speak at events to attend events to do something in the evening Okay. The remainder of my evenings, I want to spend it with my family and I want to preserve that. So regardless how many vibes, how many things are going on every week, only two evenings a week can I sacrifice to do things. I always have to make a trade-off decision as to what do I do versus I don't. So those are examples of the values, the things that I value. You know, another one is direction over speed. I'd rather gain momentum going slowly in the same direction than acting with haste going in multiple directions, right? You know, another one's playing the long game, which I preach about a lot, which is about delivering quality consistently over a long period of time because it's a game of inches. And James Clear touches on this in his book, Atomic Habits, where he talks about the compounding impact of just building up small habits over a long period of time. Okay, so these are examples of values and values help you um, because they're guiding principles when it comes to decision making. It helps you make smart decisions on a consistent basis because you know the core of what's leading you to make those decisions, okay? Step two for me is, like, I'm a big believer in following your curiosity, okay? But when you follow your curiosity, you have to track the results. So I started journaling about six years ago where I just write down anything I can't rely on my memory for because you can't rely on your memory to remember everything, right? So things that I'm learning, feedback that I receive, experiences with my family, like getting engaged or like my daughter being born. I'd write it all down. I'd even put the pictures in there. I'd even attach messages that I may receive on WhatsApp or LinkedIn into that journal so that I can look back every six months and I can connect the dots. Okay. And it's almost like Google analytics for me, because when I connect those dots, it gives me insights and how I can be more intentional about how I can spend my time going forward. You know, what are the things that I didn't enjoy that I want to reduce or eliminate going forward, right? So it gives you that level of insight that you just don't get from relying on your memory. And a step three for me is about asking this key question to your friends, to your family, and to your colleagues or people that you just know, okay? At least 10 to 12 people. Ask them, what comes easy to me but difficult to others that you believe I'm one of the best at? It's a really simple question. What comes easy to me, but difficult to others that you believe I'm one of the best at? And when you receive those answers back, analyze those answers for the keywords and the commonality across people's uh, responses. Okay. And it's going to be really insightful because it's not going to be what you expect. So for me, people said that I'm great at connecting with people and connecting to people, right? Which means that I can connect with you one-on-one, but I'm also a great connector of people. So I can connect you to other people within my network. And I do those two things really well. And the third thing that they said I was good at is translating difficult information and knowledge into simple stories and easy to understand language. 
So that gave me insight into what my strength is and allowed me to double down on that when I'm actually doing the work that I'm doing every day. Okay, so those are just a few tips on how you can become more self-aware, right? First, codifying and writing down your values. Second, answering that key question around like what comes easy to you but difficult to others. And thirdly, becoming more of a tracker and keeping a journal so that you can connect the dots between what you're experiencing once you start feeding your curiosity and trying things out. When you feed your curiosity and try things out, obviously that means you're, you're going to fail. You're likely to fail. And that's one thing that a lot of people are scared to do. So how you develop that, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. I mean, you wrote on Twitter a while ago, growing up in, as a minority in the UK, I thought I couldn't afford to fail. I reframed my mind and get a new perspective. How can you, does that mean you've never failed? No, it means I, I reframed the way I looked at failure. Okay. Failure became more of a badge of honor because what I was doing is not really failing. I was learning fast. Okay. So in every experience that didn't go my way, I learned so that I could be more intelligent when moving forward. So I know what not to do again. I know how I do things differently. Okay. So uh, I'll give you an example. Okay. With the, um, the angel investing school, initially I was targeting like professionals such as lawyers and investment bankers. Okay. And I quickly learned through just speaking to them one-on-one that it doesn't work for them. Not because they're not interested, they're very interested, but the delivery model just doesn't work for them because their work schedules are too unpredictable. So they cannot dedicate six Wednesdays in a row to doing this program because they don't know what their, what work they're going to have across those Wednesdays. So it quickly taught me that I have two options here. If I'm really passionate about serving this audience I can change my delivery model. For example, pre-recorded videos that I release once a week and then maybe an, an ask me anything session on the weekend so that they can do it given the time they have. Or question, or my option two was pivot who I'm delivering it to. So forget investment bankers and lawyers. I'm going to deliver it to people that have more control over their time, like consultants, freelancers, you know, um, creatives, you know, and that's what I chose to do. I said, actually, I'm going to target a different audience. So I'd love to capture, you know, investment bankers and lawyers, but it doesn't work for you. And that doesn't work for me. So I don't want to do the pre-recorded videos because I actually love the conversational style of facilitation that we developed. That's where a lot of the value is in being question-led in having the sessions, not just a pre-recorded video. So right, there's an example of, you know, on the one hand, you can see it as a failure. On the other hand, I learned fast, and based on what I learned, I changed directions. You know, and a second thing, actually, a second thing that really helped me when I was younger was traveling. Because when I traveled, you know, and it could be traveling across the UK, it could be traveling within London, or it could be traveling on holiday. But when I traveled to places, I always made sure that I was an active participant in the places that I was traveling to. So that means that I got immersed in the culture. I learned a bit more about the history. I ate the local food. I learned a bit about the language. And when you immerse yourself in those kind of experiences, you learn, right? Because you're learning about a different way of life, a different way of thinking, okay? And you, you come back better for it because you now have opened up your, your sphere of what your perspective was because now you've understood, understood a different perspective, a different way of living. So that enriches you. The more you experience that, the more open-minded you are, the more you're molded by diversity and inclusion, right? The more it becomes a real thing to you because you see the value in the different perspectives. So again, that's a really good trait, being really growth-minded, open-minded, and really immersing yourself when you travel and meet new people and new cultures. So you've obviously said in the past you've traveled to, I think, about 60 countries. Yeah, I, I don't keep count anymore, but yeah. But. What would be the, let's say, the top three things that travel has taught you, for one? But two, why why traveling? Because obviously, we, we grew up in, grew up in the end, we grew up in, in Tottenham. That's not something that comes natural to us. A lot of people don't want to have passports, let alone to travel outside the country. So what are the top three things you've got from traveling and then why traveling? Actually? Yeah, so top three things is number one, um, I can't just go and be a tourist. I need to be an active participant where I'm traveling to. So I can't go somewhere just to lay on the beach for 10 days and come back home. It's not a great use of my time. It's not a great respect to, to that journey of traveling to that new destination. Secondly, like 
just in terms of like learning about relationships and history of humans and how humans interact with each other, I believe that we're all born to have a shared experience. No one is born to be lonely. It's not a comfortable experience for any of us. And traveling allows me to connect the dots on our commonalities as humans, regardless of our race, age, creed, or background, but also really value and understand the differences, right? And thirdly, the, the most important lesson I think I learned, which reframed my mindset when I was growing up, is that, you know, by no fault of my own, I have this great privilege of being born in the UK and being born a man. That comes with benefits and that comes with with um, oppressions, you know, right? or, 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 or things that aren't, aren't fair, okay? So like, I benefit from patriarchy just because I'm a man. But uh, it's very exhausting being a black man sometimes, right? Especially what we see happening in America, what we see happening in the news, what we see with racism and oppression. It could be very exhausting, you know, growing up in a council estate and feeling like there's people that live above me, below me, to the left of me and to the right of me. And every day I need to navigate this struggle of not being bullied, not being robbed, not being stabbed, not being attacked, you know, protecting my identity, but at the same time, suffering from racism, right? All of these struggles that you have to deal with, right? So when I traveled, especially to Soweto in South Africa, to Ghana, to the favelas in Brazil, I realized as a young man that I'm actually more privileged than I thought I was, right? Like poverty, poverty was relative. And what I realized is that I have high potential, but also high access to opportunity because I was born in London, not even by choice. Whereas a lot of the young people that I met in Brazil, in Ghana, in South Africa, had high potential just like me, but had low access to opportunity, which meant that it became very difficult for them to rise and become like I can, right? Like in a simple privileges, right? Like I've got access to the internet. Not everyone has access to the internet. I've got access to a high volume of great jobs in London. Not everyone has that. I have access to education, which was free. Not everyone has that. I've got access to free healthcare of the NHS. Not everyone has that. Right. And and you have to count these blessings. And through traveling, you really put that into perspective. You know, so I know that third answer was a little bit longer, but hopefully hopefully you see the value and importance of of traveling for all of us not just just myself and even traveling in itself it's a privilege not everyone can afford to travel yeah, i think it's it's critical i think what you just touched on right there is actually people realizing that what you have in your hands a lot of times it's so easy for us to compare and be like oh we don't have this we don't have that we come from a different background different white people are privileged, all that kind of stuff. But actually, what you just said about traveling, you realize that actually we have a lot more than a lot of other people do, especially in the UK. And the more we lean into what we have and focus not on what we don't have, it helps us to build and to develop and to look at life completely differently. I know you're going to about to ask another question, but it helped me form a sense of identity that wasn't attached to where I grew up. Because I started to realize that where I grew up doesn't determine what I become. And it was really important for me to detach that because I didn't want to become this person in Tottenham that does X, Y, or Z, which is what people associate with people that grow up in that area, right? So I formed this level of identity and courage in who I am and who I want to be, right? And what that meant was actually sometimes detaching myself from, for example, an academic institution or a grade that I've got. I wasn't an A grader. Right? I wasn't getting A stars all the time. I didn't go to the top university, but I realized that that was okay because I, I got values from being street smart in Tottenham that a lot of my peers didn't have in the workspace. You know, I got values. I got a lot of values and learnings from being a nonconformist. Right. So when I went backpacking at 21 to South America, a lot of the people in Tottenham were like, you're crazy. You're going to get killed. That's not what black people do. Right. But by being nonconformist, I had my biggest leaps in learning. Right. Another thing, I, I did a group, I had a group of friends that we used to save with when I was younger, about seven, eight years ago. And we saved 40,000 pounds together, which was amazing at that age. And everyone slowly asked for their money back one by one. But by being non-conformist and doing that, I learned about property investing and investing across asset classes. And that's compounded to where I am today, teaching people about investing, right? So all of these journeys and experiences of me being non-conformist in my past 
with some of my biggest learning leaps because what I realized is that growth occurs at the edge of your comfort zone. And I was constantly pushing myself to operate on that edge. That is, that is, that is fire right there. That is fire right there. Living at the edge of your comfort zone is so critical. And you, in fact, both questions are kind of going to one. When you talked about, previously talked about being a man and the privilege that, that gets you, how did you learn to be a man? How did you learn to, even to be a husband, a father, have the mindset, approach? Where did that come from? So I'm a continuous learner is the first thing. So I'm always a student to the game. And it's very timely, that question, because I'm currently doing a pre-marriage course and I'm loving it. The first, the first class was on communication and effective listening. And I've got so much to improve on that. <laughs> I didn't even, I wasn't even conscious of, right? Like a bad habit that I had that I didn't realize was that I'd always ask um, my wife for clarification and I'll say, do you understand me? Do you understand what I just said? Or is that logical? Is that, do you understand? But by doing that, I was undermining her ability to understand what I've said. Because why should I have to clarify? I said it. Didn't I, done, did I not articulate myself well? I should be questioning myself. Did I articulate myself well there? Not, do you understand? So there's these small tweaks in language that are really important. You know, like effective listening is about reflecting on what the person said playing it back and summarizing to make sure that you understood what they said and then asking asking probing questions to get deeper to show that I care about what you said and this is what I want to learn more about. You know, it's not about giving advice. Sometimes when people are talking, you feel like you have to advise them back. You know, it's not about advice. Sometimes people just want someone to hear and the art is in listening and being silent. Sometimes they're not even having a reply or any advice. That's okay. You know, but at least you've heard me, right? So, I'm doing this course right now that's helping me become a better husband and being a better man, right? And in my father, I learned a lot of traits about be, becoming a man and as a man thinketh because I used to see him work very hard. And that work ethic that I saw him work was because he was sacrificing to provide for the family. I appreciate that and I valued that and I understood the importance now of what he was trying to teach me in going to school and being privileged to be in this country and trying to be better for yourself, in, in trying to be more than he even was in his country. And my dad passed away many years ago, but those lessons have compounded to the man I've become today. You know, in seeing my brothers, I learned a lot. I've got a younger brother and I've got an elder brother. My elder brother was the person in the family who did a lot of things for the first time. Like he's the one that went to football training first and, you know, got all of these awards for his football ability. He was the one to first go into this primary school, secondary school and university. I followed him through that exact same journey, the same primary school, the same secondary school, the same university. He's the one that became this amazing CEO of this music startup that generates over a million in revenue. He's the one that I followed. He's the one that I've learned from. He's the one that had kids first that taught me about what it means to be a father. You know, so a lot of what I've learned and what people see in the public domain about me, I've learned a lot from actually behind the scenes being surrounded by this masterclass of great people like my brother, like my dad, but also my friends, my inner circle of friends like yourself, Shopi, like my brother Maz, my brother Abdul, the brother Dennis. These are people that I've grown with for the last 20 years, you know, and we've all been growing and sharpening each other's sore. You know, iron sharpens iron, birds of a feather flock together. Both of those statements are very true, okay? The downside of that is it's very ex exclusive experience. It's not inclusive. The upside of that is that we generally challenge each other to grow, you know, and in, in a holistic way. It could be about family. It could be about, you know, work. It could be about your passion and interests. And I think it's healthy to just recognize that not all friends are friends that are good for your growth, these circle of friends might be good for parties. This circle of friends might be uh, being good for the library. But it's very special when you have a select few friends who are good holistically across the board. You know, and I'm fortunate that I have that and I recognize the privilege, but that has had a, a, a compounding impact on the man I've become today, whether it's a husband, a father, a brother. Like that has helped me. Even being able to sense check things off those friends and and treating them like almost like a personal board of advisors so that I know that I can come to an informed decision once I bounce off these friends who I trust, you know, and I'm privileged to have that, have that in yourself and others. I remember Roman said you're the average of the five people you spend most time with. I know there's a lot of debate about that, but based on what you said right now, do you, do you buy into that or? 
look, this life is a personal journey, right? So just generic advice that people hear, man, it doesn't apply to me, it doesn't apply to me, that's fine. But it does apply to some people, okay? And there's always going to be a small, a long tail of people that, that this advice really advi- applies to, okay? Like, I don't know if I call it the average of, of all of the people that I surround myself with, but I definitely grow and become better because of these people that I'm surrounded with, right? It contributes to it, being conscious about who's in my inner circle and who's not. Like, there's certain friends I had to drop, right? When I learned that small people talk about people, average people talk about things, and great people talk about ideas, I had to get around some great people, all right. Some of those people are ahead of me in my journey. Some of the people are on a transcendent journey, but there's always these relative learnings that you can connect the dots with, especially when, like I said, you keep a journal and a tracker that helps you connect the dots because you can't rely on your memory alone. Right. It all connects. It's all connected. I think that the reflective piece is something that you've leaned into throughout your journey and how critical that really is. That's taking that time to, to step back, to write, to think, to connect the dots to start seeing the patterns for yourself. Because the more you can do that, then you can start identifying things around your friendships, your relationships, the way you communicate, the way you lead, all that kind of stuff. It all kind of flows together. But you need to be able to reflect, which is critical. But that's not something that comes natural to a lot of people, especially guys. I think that that's partly because of the ego. Man, man has an ego sometimes that, you know, and it's patriarchy that's played into that. You know, this feeling that men are above women, men are above in society, men are meant to be the bosses, men are meant to be the workers, you know, this is, this is psychologically impacted man to feel like, yes, we make decisions. And a lot of that is from our intuition and our gut, because I am the man, I am the leader. And a lot of that is toxic. A lot of that is poisonous, you know, and it stops us from feeling like I can be self-reflective. Oh no, that's, that's matriarchal. That's a female trait. That's, oh, I can keep a diary. No, that's not what men do traditionally. But what's interesting now with the internet is that it's connected globalization. It's connected us all globally. So now people are much more open and comfortable with sharing that. You know, I keep a diary. You know, I do the, I, I bake. I do the cooking in my house. Or I might stay at home husband. I can do. Because we're reshaping what it means to be, to, to have an identity. And we no longer care about conforming to the masses. Actually, there's value in our niches and in our tribes. And we can now find our tribes much more easy than we could pre-internet because we can connect to the people that, are, that, that, that we belong to. The village is no longer just a physical environment. The village is now online. And talking about your and what you do, obviously you talked about the start, you work with um, your Angeli AIS, the investment school, you worked with underrepresented founders. That's one area you focused in the last decade or so. Why did you step into that field, into that area? Did you feel it was your duty to pick up the baton to represent being from Tottenham or what drove you to do that? So in 2015, I had an interesting experience where I worked in Silicon Valley in San Francisco for about seven months. And what I saw was the ability for a lot of, a lot of mainly white middle-class males to turn their earned income and networks into passive income and and this journey of of prosperity and wealth creation that's created at this intersection of tech and finance okay and what i saw was that you know a lot of these technologists were getting funded to build amazing incredible companies right and i was sitting at the desks of a lot of the vc investors the venture capitalists and I learned very quickly that there's a very narrow set of people doing the investing and a very narrow set of people receiving the money and I learned statistics such as 1% of, of venture capitalist funds go to um, black founders and less than 0.2% went to black women. And this didn't sit well with me. This became a, cha- a call to arms for me and a challenge that I wanted to see change in the future. Right. So I, I didn't sit comfortable with that even if I could move that percentage by 1%, 2%, I know that I'm contributing to, to meaningful change. So then I said to myself, actually, I want to see more people like me go along this wealth creation journey and participate in this too. It should be open to all of us, you know? And I started off with writing blogs. Simple as just writing blogs about telling stories about black founders and, you know, black investors to really profile people so that there's more relative role models that people can see that they identify with. That was step one, you know, and this is what I mean about taking this iterative journey of experimenting and committing to delivering quality consistently over the long game, right? So I blogged for about three years and I wrote over about 60, 70 blogs 
And then I connected the dots again using my journal. I connected the dots to see what the commonality was between what I was blogging about. And it was definitely this intersection of startups, investors, and the culture. And once I knew that, um, I doubled down on that. And I said, I want to start a podcast where I interview people like this. I can tell their stories in a different way. And one of the people that I interviewed was a lady called Arlen Hamilton at Backstage Capital. And um, she was a black woman. She was gay. And um, she was uh, entering into venture, which is an industry that um, wasn't traditionally, uh, we didn't traditionally have black women leading funds, all right? And she has this incredible journey that you can read about Google. Um, and long story short, um, off the back of the podcast, which I never brought out, which on the surface people feel is a failure, I nurtured a relationship and she hired me to work at Backstage Capital. And I helped to build their global accelerator program across LA, Detroit, Philadelphia and London and we invested in the end around two and a half million into 25 different diverse led um, startups Um, and that was me contributing to solving the problem but then I grew deeper into the problem and realized that too many people in the culture um, overvalue venture capital and and raising funding rather than executing on their idea given the capability that they have and so I said, I want to solve this problem in a different way. Okay. And I wanted to really teach people about this product mindset and the value of being iterative, experimenting and building based on the capability and skills that, and resources that you do have rather than over indexing on what you don't have, which is venture capital and access to that. So now it, it changed and morphed slightly to actually, you don't need to build, get like gain venture capital. What can you build given who you are, what your skills are, what your network is? You know, and it's a different way of reframing that problem because the goal isn't to raise funding. The goal is to, is to build a meaningful mission-led company that has real, delivers real value to the market and has actual customers that are driving your growth because you're serving people, right? And I want to see black-owned businesses in the UK grow to 500K EBIT like earnings before interest and in tax. I want to see us grow to those levels beyond the UK, you know, and that doesn't necessarily require venture capital. And I think it's important for people to understand that because venture capital funds less than 0.5% of new businesses. Whereas for example, debt from the bank funds over 20% of new businesses. So we really need to reframe how we see this journey of value creation through starting a company um, and I'm here, I'm here for that. I'm here trying to help that. And at the same time, I'm, I'm here like training professionals on how to get started with investing in startups because the majority of people that start businesses sometimes need just that first vote of confidence, support and capital from an individual or group of individuals, which we call angel investors. And a lot of them don't go on to raise cap- venture capital after that. And that's okay. Right, so I'm helping to widen participation on the investor side as well as helping startups go along this journey of creating value without venture capital. Do you think part of what has held us back as black people has been not necessarily working together? I think it's multifaceted. This problem is systemic, okay? So, you know, I spoke about patriarchy and racism and stuff before, but the truth of the matter is like it's network driven this industry and this access to capital. And it's a flywheel that feeds into each other, okay? If I take someone like Mark Andreessen, who's a famous investor in the US, okay? He started an internet company. He gained investment from other middle-class white males, okay? That investment helped him grow his business, exit, billion-dollar exit. And then he started angel investing. Then he started a VC fund called Andreessen Horowitz, okay, with Ben Horowitz, okay? And as a, as a seasoned entrepreneur, he's now putting his capital to support other entrepreneurs. We haven't had that as black people in the UK, you know? And it's partly due to a number of reasons. One, because we're, a lot of us are first generation in this country. It takes a, it's a multi-generational approach to building wealth. That's what family offices do for, for wealthy families, right? It's a multi-generational approach. The second thing is that, you know, in terms of geographic dispersity you know a lot of investors famously say that they want to be able to drive to their investment they want their investment to be in arm's reach so they can support them see them speak to them and know where they are who they are and how they can help you know but the same is true for us now a lot of us moved to this country we're the emerging middle class but we then moved into separate areas so even though we grew up in tottenham we're moving to kent to surrey to essex so we're geographically dispersed 
So now, why is that important? Because it means now that my daughter can't grow up and have all of us as uncles and aunties because we don't live next to each other. You know, we can't have all of us own the local nursery, all of us own the local bakery. We can't have all of those systemic things because we're not even connected geographically together. Okay, and then in terms of working together and collaborating, even when we're not geographically in the same space, I can't tell you right now, like uh, all of the top black accountants, black lawyers, black uh, uh, financiers, but I should be able to. So we need to build our own talent networks so that we're better connected, so that when we are venturing or starting a new business or there are opportunities within our places of work, we can refer each other into these opportunities. But in order to do that, we need to be concentrated in how we form these networks. And there are startups that are trying to solve this problem, like BYP, Black Young Professionals, right? And we need to band together and get behind these kind of styles because we do want to get better connected together and we do want everyone to win. I think there's a change in the perception now. It used to be like, oh, black people don't like working together. I don't think that's a perception now. I think there's a lot of us that do want to work together. We just want to figure out how we can get better connected. And I think we're going along that journey now. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the the generation has changed, changed the game completely. Tech has opened up a lot of stuff. And people are definitely more like, what can we do to move the needle forward? Because we have to. We don't have a choice. Like you even talked about previously, what's going on, especially in the US right now. It's kind of like something needs to change. And now people are like, not something needs to change, but we're going to be that change and we want to get involved. And that's a lot of what you're doing with the work you've done, for example, with Backstage Capital, what you're doing AIS and educating um, people as well around about investing because that's so critical without the education you, you don't know you don't know what you don't know but where you learn and then you can actually grow and it's something that you touched on previously actually when you talked about your experience with um with the podcasting in Ireland and you said you wanted to create a podcast you reached out you spoke to her the podcast never came out but that created an opportunity for you and a lot of times I think we get so focused on it's the, oh, I want to do that, and that didn't work out. It's not by the thing. It's by the learning. Yeah, you've got to fall in love with the process and the journey. You've got to, because, because the end result and the outcome is a moment, whereas the journey is, is the time that you spend going along that. So if you're not in love with the journey, you're going through all of that pain just for that one outcome, that doesn't actually make sense. That's a bit ludicrous, right? And part of the problem is too many people transact rather than nurture relationships. Okay, so like with Arlen and many other people along my journey, the goal wasn't to get a job. The goal wasn't to work. The goal was to just add value and nurture a long term relationship. And if we focus a lot more on that, that's about falling in love with the journey rather than the process. Like the, the main reason that a lot of people don't achieve their goals I've realized is not because of the goals. The goals are inputs. They're like, I want to achieve this. That's easy to do. That's the start. The problem is people don't have the right systems and processes to support that goal in happening. Okay. And, you know, again, James Clear talks about this in his book, Atomic Habits, but, you know, like a system that helps me is my journal. It helps me connect the dots. It helps me stay accountable to my goals. A system that helps me when I work with teams at work is that every four weeks, we check in on our, on our main goal that we want to, the main goals that we want to achieve over this quarter to say, are we actually on track to achieving that or not? And let's be honest and have a discussion. If not, why not? What have we learned from that and how can we course correct? So putting these intentional processes and systems in place helps us then achieve the goal. But the system needs to be the process. It needs to be the journey. It needs to be things that you're doing intentionally to make, keep you accountable. You know, something else that I do is I send sometimes a weekly email or a weekly chat, a message in a chat to um, the leadership team to say, um, uh, how are our goals shaping the decisions that you're making? Because I want them to make smart decisions that contribute to our goals and not to make decisions based on gut or to based on things that doesn't help us achieve our goal. I'm trying to help them ruthlessly prioritize by keeping the goals front of mind so that they can be self-directed and keeping themselves accountable. So sometimes we need to develop the right systems to help us achieve the goal, but we over-index on the goal and not the systems in the same way that we overvalue ideas and underrate execution, which is why a lot of startups just don't get off the ground because we treat it like we're, we're starting a business and we put all this pressure on ourselves to be entrepreneurs rather than fall in love with the, the idea of 
I've got a problem to solve and I'm going to, I'm going to solve that problem in a, in a, even if it's in a small, meaningful way, right? Becoming a problem solver and a creative problem solver is a different view from I'm just starting a business, okay? And that's how I've treated the angel investing school. I've just solved the problem in a small, intimate, meaningful way to me with 17 people and I'm going to do it with 30 people in September, Okay, my goal isn't to become an entrepreneur to start a business. That's a byproduct of, of the process I'm going through. How do you define leadership? You just talked in leadership that you you reach out to leadership in where you currently work right now, three days a week. So how do you actually define leadership, generally speaking, as a person? I'm not fully sure, you know, is the honest answer to that. Because my, my thoughts keep evolving every year. Like this year I've accepted and understood that I need to empower every member in my team to feel like they can lead and they can coach each other. Like it is not something that should fall upon one person. It, the manager by default isn't the only leader, you know, in the team. We all have the ability to lead. You know, we have the ability to lead like you always talk about at home, in our friendship circles, you know, as as with our colleagues, right? And I think like what are the core things that I'm talking about when I'm talking about leading people? And I think it's about inspiring them, you know, helping people to act. You know, I think it's about not managing people but really like coaching them and supporting them through a certain direction. It's about teaching, you know, and that's why for me, I haven't really arrived at a definition of what it means to lead, but I know some of the characteristics or the byproducts of leading, if that makes sense. So ever evolving thing. Mm, I'd love to learn what your definition is. I know you probably put it. (laughs) I think, honestly speaking, leadership for me, it just comes down to influence. Like you said, it's it's not, forget about the, the titles. I mean, I've been in organizations where you might have a VP or CEO or top-level manager, and no one listens to them. And then you can have a day-to-day person who has absolutely no title whatsoever, but they wield a ridiculous amount of influence because they spend their time on the ground getting to know people. And they're the people that when you want to make that change in that company, they'd be like, oh, we're going to change the system, for example. And they want to do it. People get behind them. When the when the CEO says, I want to do it, it doesn't work. And they spend X amount of million just wasting. And you, you look at it you're like, that's the title right there, but that's leadership right there because one is influence. So it comes down to influence because in your house, you're leading. You're either leading with your partner or with your with your kids. You're leading with your friends in your social circles and whatever it is you're doing. Even on a day to day basis, I can go to the shop. And the other day, uh, my wife went to the shop and it was an ASDA, and she was there talking to the uh, to the cashier, and ended up having like this conversation for about fifteen minutes. And the woman was like, "You know what? No one's really spoken to me since since COVID happened, and it was so great just talking to you." And that made her day. For me, it's those little things of just reaching out and touching people. That's leadership. That's influence. That's where the biggest impact come from. People like MLK, for example. MLK was a leader and his influence has become a legacy, not because of a title he never had. It's because of the influence he had with the people and his words. That is leadership to me. And that's what we that's why I say it's so critical that we we lean into that. It's what influence we have, what influence can we use? in our circles and that's how it multiplies so what right now with ais for example is leadership because you're influencing and changing the lives and the minds of people the way they look at investing what you've done with backstage capital is about influence what you've done when you do your talks is about influence that's why a lot of people gravitate towards you because people can lead into your story because it comes up from our genuine vulnerable place of realness it's not trying you're not trying to go into any relationship conversation you have thinking, oh, I want to have a business. It's more, actually, what can I do to help you grow? And once you have a mindset, it, it changed the game completely. I love that. I love that. And, and what you just described there is the importance of recognizing what it means to be a key person of influence, um, especially when you detach that from social media and followers, which is what I think people get confused with today because influence in the right circles goes a lot further than you know, just influence in terms of your follow account on a, on a social media platform. So, yeah, I adhere a lot to what you've just shared. Thank you. Now, one thing I did promise was going to keep to time, so I'm going to run through a quick fire round before we lock off, even though there's so much we can go into, but we're not going to have a chance to go through right now. So, uh, question number one, what has investing in stock shares and startups taught you that you can apply to your daily life? Uh, it's taught me about... Um, 
being disciplined, being patient and playing the long game. And I think that applies to my wider life. What's the one thing you admire the most about your partner? I admire most her consistency. She's true to who she is in and outside of the house and she's been consistent with that for years. What's the biggest lesson that you've learned so far? I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned is just the value of nurturing long-term relationships because uh, value comes from people. People create products, people create businesses, people create um, um, the value in, in everything that we do. So like, always think about how you can nurture a long-term relationship with people and not just transact for the moment. What are the three key guiding principles for Andy? Oh, I've got so many guiding principles. You're going to ask me just to pick three? Uh, that's unfair. Okay, three guiding, guiding principles. Um, play the long game, direction over speed, and be a continuous learner and be willing to change in the face of evidence. And the last question would be, what do you want the Andy legacy to be? I think when I leave this world, I want... I want people to be able to say that, you know, Andy was someone that was very driven by his values, stuck to those values, and was a man of integrity for that. And he was selfless in ensuring that he helped people move along this journey from poverty to, to, to wealth creation. Um, and it's something that we can learn on, even though he's gone now. You know what? As someone who's known him the last two decades, that's something that it's already happening. That legacy is already living live and true why you're still here and you're already doing that. And I'm proud to, to, to just be on that journey and just watch you grow and develop. It's been an absolute pleasure. So where can people hear more about you, what you do, tap into the world of this wealth that you just dropped on us? No, I appreciate that. I've got a fantastic newsletter that I send out every Monday, which shares more about, you know, news uh, opportunities and even jobs in, in tech for minorities in the UK. Um, and you can find out more about me and that newsletter on andyayim.com. And I am is spelled A-Y-I-M for mother. Um, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, uh, reducing the amount of time I spend on there, I have to be honest. But that's Andy's HVC. That's Andy's HVC, which stands for High Value Conversations, not VC. Um, and you can also just connect with me on LinkedIn, um, Andy AM. I share a lot of content on LinkedIn as well, um, and I'm happy to connect with, with all of your listeners. It has been a pleasure talking to you, Andy AM. I really, really appreciated it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Everyday Leadership. Don't forget, I have show notes on my website, everydayleadership.buzzsprout.com. So check that out. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and tell someone else. Appreciate your support. I'll see you next time. This is Everyday Leadership.